Hello, welcome to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand. Jenny May Finn is here. In a minute, we're going to be talking to Crystal Ball off of, uh, like, she used to be on the hill, now she's on breaking points with that geezer saga. And Jenny. And Jenny. Jen says that they previously <laughs> hosted a show on the hill, but they previously hosted it. She also does Crystal and Kyle, and they were talking about me on that the other day. And friends. I don't know. Crystal, Kyle and friends. Uh, they've got friends, have they? What's the name of the podcast? I don't know. It was just a geezer called Crystal and Kyle. Some of I their friends. I don't know. But a couple of little guys that were their friends. Like a couple of puppety guys. Crystal, Kyle and friends it was called. Yeah. Is that what it's called? Yeah. What a weird thing. Anyway, they're talking about old Russ and they were saying the nicest of things. Yeah? What are you going to say back? I just throw like, thanks, you know. Am I on that? Is that what I'm on in a minute? Yeah. Oh, I'm the friend? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Well, yeah, they were being nice. They were talking about when I spoke to Candice Owens and all that kind of stuff, you know. Oh, and saying you like to bridge divides. Yeah, and they were sort of backing up my arguments, you know. Aren't maybe isn't everyone saying now there's no hope? That's the vibe I'm getting. Oh, well, that's the good. There's <laughs> <laughs> no hope for isn't you with your saying? spelling. Isn't everyone saying that there's Look, actually no way? There's no middle ground. To me. I've worked it out. It's all going to be fine, but it is going <laughs> to evolve. Yeah, it's going to be fine. Adjacent nation with Russell Brand. What do you mean? Like we're next to each other? Adjacent nation. What with... if you're annoyed at someone in the nation you live in? Look, you're <laughs> stepping out of, right? Say, like, say, like, right, check out my system, the old RB system. You want to join the adjacent, right? You say you live here in England. Yeah. I want to join the adjacent nation. I'm sick of Ireland. England. Hold on, oh, you can do that anyway. It applies anywhere. It can work in France, Tunisia, or it might not work in places where there's a very aggressive government that are militarised, okay? Because I imagine they might be quite militaristic in Tunisia. Okay. I don't know, I've not been there. Although I just suppose it's because I can remember that terrorist attack on the beach. Remember? They shot people. Okay. Anyway, I'm not blaming the government for that. They were terrorists. Anyway, listen, that's, no, no, that's my point. My point is this. Is your RB's an adjacent nation. I'm sick of England, you might say. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of paying tax. I'm sick of the way it's run. Cool. I join my adjacent nation. Set up your own community. Here's how you run the community. It's fully democratic. You're going to need to provide your own food. You're going to only have to trade where necessary. Ecological respect is absolutely paramount as long as full autonomy for each and every member of the community. So you can't tell anyone else in your community what to do. We want to run our community as Muslim. Cool. Does everyone else there? Yeah. Cool. You're a Muslim community. We want to run ours as like lgbtq type cool does everyone else they want to run it that way yeah cool now what you're going to love no tax no mortgage total what cancellation of when debt there's like venn diagrams what do you mean like a muslim person falls in love with someone else but then their values don't fit which they're gonna have to start what? their own community of that's a very niche community so what how many people uh, do you want so they in the community? Start a whole community if they don't fit in you got to start uh, communities. They start their own adjacent nation just because they don't fit in. I'm sure that the LGBTQ <laughs> one is going to accept. So there's going to be a Muslim. Or the Muslim one. I don't know which one. Do you one. think it will turn into one big blob and everyone's back where they are? It's going to be a lovely big blob. <laughs> Russell Brand's adjacent blob. Look, what my point is, is you can't. Look, don't you want your debts cancelled? I don't have any. Do you want to be happy <laughs> and less lonely? Yeah, but not if there's people talking at me all the time don't join the talky <laughs> chatty one then join a nice quiet one some people want to stay unhappy they're addicted to misery they've been conditioned to be miserable why are you Them, looking at yourself because <laughs> I, I need to see someone I can trust sometimes 
Someone I can trust. There. I thought he's always been there, this guy, and he's always been on top of it. I put a mirror next to the uh, microphone, mainly to check my hair, but also for reassurance that everything's okay, which it is. Now, Crystal Ball's coming up on the show. We'll be talking about these kind of ideas. I'll be going on her show talking about those ideas. You know who she is. It's good that she's called Crystal Ball yep. and you don't really think about it other than when you say her full name. It's funny that her parents' surname was just Ball. And they're not even really hippies. No, physicists. There you go. Could be a hippie physicist. All right, listen. Um, that's not what I'm reading. This is like my normal intro. This is you part of the comments. intro. Uh, comments. Are you going to do the jingle? Yeah, jingle? but you won't be able to hear it. Now it's time for comments. <laughs> Johnny Be Good says, The fact that a lobbyist is considered a legitimate and honest profession should tell you everything you need to know about the most corrupt governments in the world. Nice one, Johnny Be Good. Heather Cox. Wow, impactful. What's she talking about? Tim Pool. <laughs> Wow, impactful. <laughs> he really put all this into perspective. Do we want our country back or do we want to dominate the other side? A question all Americans should ask themselves and everyone. What do you want, Jen? Do you want your country back or do you just want to dominate others? Neither. What do you want then? I don't know. <laughs> a little trip trap date. Have you signed up to a dating app yet? No, I, I did go on Tinder for a second, either today or yesterday. I can't remember because of time. Was it late at night? No, I don't stay up late. What time do you go to bed? Nine. Okay, let's just do some listener shout-outs. Listener shout-outs! Sean and Elsa says, Under the skin hit me like a ton of bricks because it's everything I've believed for a while now. And since that first podcast I accidentally stumbled upon, I can't get enough. I soak up everything I can get like a dry sponge. <laughs> you saucy sausage. Meditate. Listen to Above the Noise. I meditated just now. Have you meditated today, Jen? No. You can listen on Luminary every week. You should be doing it. You should be posting about it. You have to meditate. It's time for you to change your life. You cannot live like this. I'm not even talking to you anymore, Jen. I'm talking to the listeners. Also, I'm on tour doing 33. Go to russellbrand.com forward slash live dates and have a little click on that. Sign up to my mailing list so you can stay in touch with me and I can love you like I should. And also watch my YouTube channels. There's a funny one I've just put up about Nicki Minaj's cousin's mate's balls. It's pretty good. Good stuff. All right, let's listen to Crystal Ball. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Crystal, thanks very much for joining me on the podcast I do, Under the Skin. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Are you, um, I'm going to come on your podcast as well. Is that part of what we're doing? Yes, that's right. So you'll be on Crystal Kyle and Friends, with, which is my podcast. And then, you know, I also host a show, Breaking Points with Sagar. Yeah, I, I, I um, obviously, I really, I really like all that stuff. I suppose what's... Um, interesting about what you and saga do is that you present a to to a point a mutual or inclusive or at least bipartisan perspective on current affairs and what what advantages do you think that gives you most plainly well i'll tell you a little bit about how the concept came to be and i think that'll help answer the question that's so, probably a better question um, that's a better question do definitely do that yeah so uh you know i was observing what was happening in politics in america and around the world and you see this kind of 
rise of these two different strains of populism, um, the sort of populist left as embodied by the Bernie Sanders movement in America and the quote unquote populist right, which is embodied by the Trump movement. And I would say, you know, in 2016, he ran on at least some truly populist elements, you know, sort of anti-corruption, anti-elite, anti these free trade deals that have just sucked so much of America dry. So there was truly something there, even as it came with a lot of ugliness. And of course, he ends up to be a total charlatan, just doing the bidding of every elite who wants him to in the end. But I saw these two strains and my politics, I believe very much in a multiracial working class coalition. And I think one consistent strain throughout American history and a lot of world history is elites intentionally trying to divide the working class, oftentimes by race, but can be by other characters characteristics and attributes as well. So the whole idea to start with of working with Sagar or someone with another, you know, sort of truly populist right perspective, who was an honest actor is, can we even have a conversation? Are there points of agreement? What would that even look like? So that was the starting place. And, um, you know, at this point, I think that the concept has evolved to just be about two people who have some places where ideology overlap, some places where they divide, but where we're actually trying to be honest, where we're trying to break through the media propaganda, where we're trying to break through the the political partisan propaganda. And um, what has been really encouraging that, frankly, I didn't even think was possible when we when we started working together is we actually have people who watch us and listen to us that are across the entire political spectrum. So we have true right-wingers, we have true crazy lefties like me, we have people who are all across the board who have heterodox views who may not fit into any particular sort of lane or lens. And there are the, the fact that we've been able to gather that audience in one place, that even when they don't like what we have to say or they disagree, that they at least feel like we're trying to be honest with them and straightforward with them is something that I'm just extremely proud of. And I don't think that could have been done necessarily just having one person who has one ideology. Sagar helps to keep me honest, and I hope I try to keep him honest as well so that the audience really feels like they're getting a kind of complete picture of what's going on. As a result of this collaboration and this experiment, and thank you for this, um, for explaining the origins of the idea, have you felt your affiliation with for the, the Democratic Party, if not the principles that would recently have been described as leftist, erode mm-hmm. and alter have you not felt those sort of that allegiance change as a result of the, this sort of experiment and particularly this experiment at this time i think my breakup with the democratic party was already well underway <laughs> prior to this particular project i really did there was a time where as embarrassing as it is to admit i really did think like they were the good guys and the republicans were the bad guys and i kind of viewed everything through that lens But the deeper you get into it, and especially I think that the Sanders campaign kind of revealed that that narrative is it's it's completely fanciful. I mean, it's completely false. Mm. Now, do I think the Democrats and the Republicans are exactly the same? You know, did I I voted for Joe Biden over Donald Trump, for example? No, they're not exactly the same. I think on balance, Democrats do more good things and the Republicans do a lot more bad things. But in terms of these are two established institutions that are seeking power and position above all else. Um, in that way, they are the same. 
Are they both committed to their own versions of, of propaganda and storytelling? Are they both committed to their own versions of sort of crushing any kind of different movement that may offer something different and may change the people and the institutions that are ultimately in power? Yeah, they will do whatever they can to crush those types of movements, whether it's a Republican Party or a Democratic Party. So once you sort of realize that and see through that, yeah, it becomes hard to just kind of cheerlead team blue or team red in quite the same way. So that that breakup and that realization was a long time coming before the the collaboration with Sagar, I would say. You know, Chomsky's famous um, edict that uh, the kind of totalitarianism that we live within requires healthy debate within very limited parameters, such as could be understood to be the sort of limited pendular swing of left versus right. And have you, as a result of discovering that, in a sense, the, the differences between the Democrats and the Republican are, parties are, if not meaningless, not so significant as to constitute the breadth that a true democracy would require? Has it led you to investigate or want to um, popularise or at least discuss publicly alternative political systems that are outside of the scope of you know, bipartisan democracy? For sure. For mm. sure. Um, so I'm, I would say I'm both kind of an idealist and a pragmatist. And so within the realm of American politics, the thing that we've had that has come the closest to breaking the power grip of the two current political parties is these sort of movements that come in and hijack the party, right? So even though Trump ends up becoming just a complete tool of the establishment and of the elites that already have power, they didn't know that at the beginning. And he was able to come in and hijack the Republican Party. You had two Bernie Sanders campaigns that came very, very close um, to success. Whereas, you know, the, the alternative debate is, well, maybe we should start from the ground up. Maybe we should start a third party that's truly representative of the working class and, and fights for the people first instead of the elites. And I think that that's worthy work. I think that uh, there's nothing wrong with doing that. And it can put pressure on the existing political parties. But in terms of a pragmatic reality of what's likely to have the most near term success in the United States context, I think the the evidence is clear that you've got the best shot at sort of hijacking one of the existing party structures. Because if you start from scratch with the, a third party, an independent party, you're literally starting from voter number one. Whereas with Democrats and Republicans, you have a lot of people who have that affiliation who are going to vote for those parties number, you know, to start with uh, just for showing up with a D or an R by your name. So you start at a significant, at significant advantage. Um, so I guess that's where those two things sort of collide. Like, ideally, would there be a, a third party that could come out that could meld some of these pieces together that make a lot of sense that could actually represent people, break up the corruption, all of that? Yeah, that would be amazing. Pragmatically, do I think that that's the most likely path forward? No, I don't. But Crystal, like in the case, as you've said, of like, you know, perhaps the Trump administration was precipitated by the Tea Party movement. The, the the any threat that he may have represented was stifled by systemic and if you're a conspiracy theorist type person deep state politics was able to stifle and snuff out any potential threat of true radical populism when it comes to you know within the confines of the republican party 
the Democrats observably strangled the Sanders campaign in the cradle. And like when I spoke to Marianne Williamson, who I guess you spoke to a bunch, like she mm -hmm. made it clear that the Democratic Party would rather lose to Trump than win with Bernie. And I think, yeah, that's, I think of, that's right. That shows how deep the uh, uh, those uh, the ideological alliances to sort of a neoliberal principles within that party are and for me those two you know let's face it recent examples along with the history the relatively young history of your country and the um, relative intransigence of those two parties and the total political system that they comprise means that whilst it will be a greater endeavor to establish an alternative party outside of those confines it is a necessary one because of the magnetism of conformity and institutionalism that exists in both those instances and i feel one of the things that both the sanders and trump campaigns demonstrate as well as the kind of rhetoric from figures like steve bannon uh, is that there is an appetite for true populism. True populism mm -hmm. at this point, somewhat like your show with Saga, could transcend those old boundaries that you could almost say, I'm not left or right. Here's what I believe in. Your right to control your own life, your right to run your own communities, the bringing uh, into balance the powers of tech giants and the uh, control and some regulation of the mainstream media, low taxes, all ta uh, the possibility to vote for where your taxes are spent. Like, in fact, in a sense, what I feel like when I have these conversations, I get the when I get opportunity to have conversations like this one, I feel like what people want is just what's already in your constitution: democracy, real democracy. Mm -hmm. the, 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 That's the, it. Yeah, and I wonder. That's if, it. What do well, you think about all I, those let me words? Just say let me just say, I don't think that any of it's easy. <laughs> so, you know, the idea, if you have these two different paths, one is the third party path and one is the sort of hijacking the existing party structure. Both of them, you could make a case are impossible, right? You could make a case for either one of them being totally outside of the purview of what could be accomplished in American politics. Um, but if you just look at very recent examples, the effort that came the closest to doing something different would have been the Sanders movement and, you know, came pretty darn close both times around to really overturning the apple cart because of all the people, Walmart workers and Amazon workers and Starbucks workers who decided they saw themselves at this movement, who didn't see it as much on a left right spectrum as this is my chance to actually have a voice to be a, a real participant in a democratic process. Whereas, you know, Green Party is on the ballot. They don't want a single state. It's a much higher hill to climb at this point for a real third party to have a chance at success. So that's why I look at it again. Look, you're 100% right. Democratic and Marianne Williamson, who I love um, and is a close friend of mine, is 100% right. The Democratic Party will do anything to stop losing their access to power, right? They keeping their own grift and cartel going. They'll do anything to stop that. They'll do anything to uh, up to and including lose to make sure that that doesn't come to fruition. There were people on MSNBC who, when it looked like Bernie Sanders was going to be the nominee, who were out and out saying, I might vote for Trump instead. The very man that they've said was, you know, Hitler and genocidal and the end of the republic altogether. So they're sort of upfront about it in the end. 
But do I think that those obstacles, as impossible as they seem, are more surmountable than starting a third party from scratch? I think that's what the evidence suggests at this point. Yeah, and I suppose that in itself demonstrates how entrenched these structures are, that even at the point of conception, you'd have to say, oh, well, it's going to immediately be within these confines. And for any optimism that there may have been around the ultimately um, um, unsuccessful Sanders campaign, we don't know what would have happened had it become an administration, had it left the realm of conjecture and entered the realm of administration. But like based on what happened under Obama, it would likely have fallen pretty quickly into line because... I mean, I suppose in this country where, like, you know, there, I'm sure if, for people that have a greater understanding than I do, there will be obviously significant differences in our political systems. But one thing that feels like it is common to both is that, you know, perhaps could be summarised by that famous Margaret Thatcher quote, like, well, what is her greatest legacy? She was once asked and she said, Tony Blair. You know, like that by the time Thatcher had left office, the Labour Party ditched its historic affiliation with the trade union movement, or at least significantly curtailed it, and and the ability of the trade union movement to direct the party policy, and became a party of big business and of commerce and, you know, like, yeah, sort of a Bill Clinton-style, you know, administration or party. When I, I once watched, I haven't spoke to Steve Bannon. I will though. I think I will speak to Steve Bannon. I once like watched him do this Oxford Union address, and it really stayed with me. He said, like, you know, we're not. We know now that the future is populism. We don't. All we're deciding is left or right. At that time, Jeremy Corbyn was still sort of, I think, possibly even campaigning for the leadership of the Labour Party, or had come in and was, you know, we we're in an, an election cycle prior to the m- more recent failure that led to his departure, um, and. I feel that this word populism has become um, misunderstood and derided. What do, what do you mean when you use that term, both left-wing and right-wing populism, Crystal? Yeah, well, it's a complicated question because it has been um, made into almost a derogatory term. Like populism is equivalent to xenophobia or hating immigrants or something like that. I do look, I'm a left populist. I think that what right populism often does is uh, use sort of immigrants or others as a scapegoat for the crimes of elites. I think that's ultimately what it ends up being. Mm. That's why in certainly the United States context, you have zero elected officials who are actually genuine right populists who are doing anything other than sort of cloaking an elite agenda in the language of the people. But where the term actually comes from is uh, an American movement that was uh, a populist movement in the late 1800s that was a coalition of working class people and farmers uh, across races in particular and started to win some elections that it was really to me, when you think about populism, Thomas Frank, who's written, you know, the greatest histories and the greatest books on the topic, you're actually just talking about having trust and faith in true democracy and in people having real power 
um, within their systems of governance and believing that they have the ability to self-govern and you don't need this, you know, tiny sliver of elites managing everything and, and controlling people and, you know, telling them that they're stupid and that they always know better. Because in fact, what we've seen throughout history is oftentimes those elites, especially in recent, recent history, they've been liars, they've been propagandists, they've been criminals, and they've just been flat out wrong. Um, they were wrong about, you know, these trade deals bringing prosperity to all, or they were lying about it. Maybe they knew that it was just going to go wealth to the very top of society. They were wrong about the financial collapse and the financial crisis. Um, and some of them were, you know, criminally wrong in leading to the collapse of the global economy and facing absolutely no consequences. So I have a lot more faith in the common sense and the good character of your average citizen than I do in the class of elites that rule this country, certainly. So that's what I mean when I talk about populism, when I think about populism. And it has been given, it has been intentionally made into a dirty word because if trusting the people is bad, then that justifies consolidating power in the hands of the few that already have power. Thank you. What do you think about how the coronavirus pandemic is being handled in your country? Do you think that debate has been stifled? Do you think it's been overly politicized? Do you think that the the, um, the, the language of science has been mobilized to discredit and curtail um, open debate and conversation? 100%. And that's not even me thinking that. It's not an opinion. Um, you can look at the way that opinions on pandemic response have become completely politically polarized in the US. And I suspect that that's happening a lot of places, but the studies show it's more politically polarized in the, U in the US than anywhere else. Um, people have formed identities around their response to the pandemic, whether it's, you know, what they do, whether they wear the masks, whether they're in favor of um, lockdowns and school closures and um, just the sort of like theatrics of the pandemic, I guess. We all wear our brand of, uh, it becomes our political brand and our personal brand in terms of the choices that we're making personally to try to keep ourselves safe and sane and all of those things. Um, I do think that a lot of the initial politicization of the pandemic came directly from Donald Trump um, on masking and the way that he talked about the pandemic, the way he was very dismissive of it. And so it's just become like almost everything in America at this point, completely tribal, the way people view it. And then you have, on the other hand, um, liberals who have again formed this sort of like pandemic identity around how serious that they take it. And they don't want to hear, you know, any other side of the debate. For example, the costs that were imposed on especially vulnerable kids by closing schools. When we know that coronavirus, thank God, is less dangerous and less deadly to children, much, much less so than elderly populations. Um, and we also know the number of kids who just dropped down of school. I mean, kindergartners who never showed up by the millions in America. What's, what are the costs of those going to be? We know the mental health costs. So there hasn't been what you would describe as sort of balanced approach. And then adding to that, you've got um, social media platforms that 
want to completely, you know, stifle debate and decide what you can and can't say. Uh, you have public health officials up to and including Dr. Fauci, who have lied about critical things at critical points, masking being a, a key example at the very beginning of the pandemic. He told everybody, don't wear a mask, masks don't work. When And then later on, he admits that, well, actually, we knew masks worked, but we just wanted to save them for uh, for healthcare responders so that they would have the supplies that they need. Well, even if your motivations were noble in making sure that people on the front lines had what they needed, you just blatantly lied to people about the science and what you know. So there were sort of, you know, been bad actors all the way around, and it's been very difficult to sort through it, I think, for your average person to understand what's true, what's false, am I being spun, is this a political agenda, or is this actual scientific factual information that is being presented to me. The other, of course, you know, obvious example here is the way that when people first started asking questions about how did this pandemic start, where did it come from, there, there was this coalescing in the media uh, and among corners of the scientific community that were self-interested that it had to have been zoonotic in origin and to even suggest that it may have originated in a lab is racist, it's xenophobic, it's wrong, it's Trumpian, it's all these things. You can't even like suggest that that's the case. Now we're down the road and we still don't know whether it was zoonotic or whether it came from the lab, but basically the evidence looks pretty good uh, in the direction of this came out of the Wuhan Institute of Virology. The very thing that the media and social media platforms told us we were absolutely not supposed to think or say, et cetera. So when you have this climate of censorship, of jumping to conclusions before those conclusions are really justified, it doesn't tamp down conspiracy theories. It it makes conspiracies more likely to flourish because people say, well, if you were lying and censoring me on this thing, which turns out to have some merit, then you know I'm not going to believe you when you say this other thing over here is equally false or, you know, I'm not going to believe you when you tell me that the vaccines work when you've lied to me about so many other things. Now, look, I'm vaccinated. The vaccines do work. We've had now a massive, you know, billions of people trial around the world that shows how they protect, especially against hospitalization and death. But can you really blame people who looked around and said, you lied to me time and time again? So no, I don't trust you on this one. No, I don't believe you when you tell me to trust the science. Particularly as I suppose that as that perspective, that um, style of governance, of communication has precedence that precede that that mentality precedes this matter like that the, the the relationship between sort of big pharma or even big business more broadly and the state and the sort of controlling and stifling of information is in a sense the perfect conditions to create mistrust that that mm-hmm. when the companies that are charged with the manufacture of the virus have been involved, say, for just one example, the opioid crisis. It's just sort of hard to reboot your trust around that unless there is kind of legislation where it's you cannot profit from these matters, like, like from even from health, from medical right. issues. And, 
And that's where I feel like, you know, to our earlier conversation about like, you know, the, the neither the Democratic Party or the Republican Party are likely to come forward with policies that will meaningfully change the lives of ordinary Americans, whether it's a populist like Donald Trump or, you know, from my cynical perspective, even a populist like Bernie Sanders is when it comes to crunch time, going to be willing to sacrifice the relationships with the kind of institutional power, agency power, big business power in favor of ordinary people i feel like that it's just too entrenched i feel like that would be seen as an act of war in fact if you said we're going to put the interests mm -hmm. of ordinary people first i think you'd be killed for it for saying that well i mean we have an example in american history the closest we have to it is fdr who said you know of those arrayed interests against him i welcome their hatred and his recognition was came from a place, you know, where you had rising sort of more radical movements um, around the world and in the U.S. as well. And he realized that if he didn't take some more radical actions, he said he wrote to a friend, it's time to be radical for a generation, because he realized without some more radical reforms to cut a broader swath of the American people in on the deal, that the whole thing was going to come apart. But I mean, the interests that were arrayed against him, what it was insane. I mean, every newspaper endorsed against him, every academic, every economist, of course, the bankers, the corporate elites, all of them arrayed against him. But he was wildly popular with the people. You have to be ready for them to consider it an act of war. You have to be ready for them to absolutely hate you. And this is one of my big criticisms of the... Um, political elected left in America is that oftentimes they they don't want the media to hate them. They want to be friends with the media. They want to get good coverage. They're anytime they're receiving criticism in the media, they they shrink from that. They're afraid, oh, this isn't going to work out. And in fact, you know, because we've had that uh, orientation towards the media, especially within the Democratic Party for years and years, where it's like, no, we trust the media, the media is telling us the truth, we believe them. You can see that when they do in a uniform voice, turn on a politician or turn on a candidate, it does exact a major toll. Um, you can see this right now with Joe Biden, who is not a politician that I particularly care for, but who I think really did the right thing in finally, belatedly, decades late, pulling our servicemen and women out of Afghanistan. And there's just been all these people who did not care for years when Afghan civilians were getting blown to smithereens, who said nothing about it, who covered Afghanistan, all of the nightly news broadcasts together for five minutes in the year when civilian deaths in Afghanistan were the highest suddenly they care so deeply about it. And so that since they've had this unified voice on this topic, he's taking a major political blow for, again, what I think is the most courageous thing that he's done in his entire political career, long 40-year political career. So they fear that sort of unified opposition from the media coming from them and really hurting them. But you have to have the confidence to know that if you're doing the right thing, if people see you really standing up to them and fighting for them, that they're going to have your back in the same way that FDR had that confidence and that it, you know, that he was proved correct by that and set up lasting social institutions and safety net that look, it was wildly imperfect. It was, you know, applied in a racist way. There were all sorts of problems with it, but that gave us 
the very basics of some kind of a social safety net, some sort of a, a middle class that people could rely on stable ability to move upwards that, you know, lasted for generations and has now been completely eroded to the point of non-existence. Do you think that the anti-withdrawal stance in in most, if not all, media is kind of sponsored by military industrial complex? Do you think that's why it's being universally condemned? Oh, 100%. A hundred percent. And you can see, I mean, it's insane the people that they will have on to make the case. Like you're going to have on a war criminal to make the case. The very people who lied us into these wars and, and lied for years and years to justify keeping us there and, and, you know, sanctioned atrocities and told our soldiers to look the other way when our allies were literal pedophile um, drug dealers. Like those are the people you're going to have on to make the case for why we should continue to stay in Afghanistan forever and do it with a straight face and not ask them one critical question. And the way that it works is, of course, all the people, all the contractors, all the generals, everybody who was involved in this war got tremendously rich at the high levels. Of course, the soldiers, and the, the servicemen and women were the ones who paid the ultimate price here. But all the elites, they got wildly rich off of this thing. It was the grift of a generation, right? So they have massive financial interest in keeping this going literally forever. And their friends are, you know, the same social circle are these so-called journalists who are now completely outraged that Biden is falling through on the promise that president after president has made. It's the same type of sort of like cozy clubby access journalism where these people feel that their own personal professional interests are in maintaining these ties, maintaining these friendships so that they can sort of continue to climb the ladder. So even though they not, may not be, the journalists themselves aren't personally invested in Boeing or General Dynamics or Raytheon, their friends are, and those are the people they rely on to help elevate them in their career. So that's how this elite consensus forms. And that's how it ends up being just a totally unified vo voice no matter what network, I mean, this is true bipartisan consensus stuff, right? Whether it was Fox News or MSNBC or CNN, you're getting almost exactly the same line about the Afghan war. Yeah, he said, didn't he, Chomsky, like that wherever both parties agree, you have no choice at all. In all those instances, there is no democracy. And I feel like, um, like even post-Trump, there's been no humility on the left, no humility in the liberal left media, no acknowledgement. And like where, you know, in right-wing populism, it is acceptable to demonize immigrants in left-wing, I don't know if it's necessarily populism, it's sort of like that's this neoliberalist establishment authoritarianism. It's acceptable to vilify and demonize the working class, in particular, yeah. the white working class. And in a sense, Trump was the catalyst that made that demonization kind of really ramp up, I feel. I think it's it's even more than acceptable. It's almost a central organizing principle mm. of that type of neoliberal thought. You know, the mantra of 
soccer and I show breaking points is that our goal is to hate each other less and hate the elites more. So it's not some like kumbaya, we love each other, you know, everything's great and there's, there's no problems. We all just need to get along. It's in favor of a divisive politics, but where you understand who the true sort of um, criminals are uh, in the country and the reason why uh, things are the way that they are. So yeah, I think that the partisan media, whether it's Fox News on the right, whether it's CNN and MSNBC uh, in the liberal space, they love a story that's all about uh, caricaturing and demonizing people who have a different ideology or a different lifestyle than you do. So if you turn over to CNN, you might hear a story about how some moron didn't get vaccinated and now they're dead. And it's this disgusting cheerleading of, you know, like celebration that someone didn't go and get the vaccine, which sure they should have done to protect themselves. But now you think that the proper response to that is to celebrate their death. And that's grotesque. And then, you know, in right-wing media on Fox News, you hear a similar sort of existentialism about how critical race theory is going to destroy your community and brainwash your kid and these same sorts of like making it that the, th- the greatest threat to yourself and your life and your family is not climate change. It's not the banks. It's not political elites. It's not natural disasters. It's your neighbor who happens to maybe think differently than you do. So there's a lot of profit to be made off of that. And um, Matt Taibbi, who wrote the book, book Hating, he really lays out this whole sort of structure of media where you used to have the Cold War. That was great. Ratings justified. You had a clear enemy. That was great. You could get people scared and freaked down about the communists coming. Then you had the war on terror. And now oh, it's the it's the Muslims who are, they're the really bad guys. And that was kind of like this, you know, thing that they could get people to freak down about and continue to turn on their TVs to watch and learn about, quote unquote, learn about. Um, and once that kind of stopped working, then the enemy was each other. You know, then it was your neighbor who's not getting vaccinated or who has the Black Lives Matter flag on their lawn. Then that became the real enemy. And, you know, it's the most terrifying enemy of all because we're everywhere, right? You're, there are people to fear all over and the threat is existential and these people are destroying the country. So that's what these networks and mainstream media have settled on as, as the villain. And it's truly destroying the country. I mean, it's creating this total sectarianism, um, justifying political violence. It's, you know, creating the situation where people just don't even see each other as in the same project together, ultimately. And most importantly, it allows them to cover for their own crimes and failings and corruption so that, you know, you never see like, oh, well, how did we end up with you know, the, the oxy crisis and these mass addictions crisis. Let's not talk about that. Let's not talk about the way that both parties were complicit in enabling big pharma over generations. Let's instead talk about your neighbor who may think differently than you. Oh, that's really cool. Um, the way you describe it, not the situation itself, which let's face it is abhorrent. Do you think that uh, this, um, st- 
stagnation and this uh, the intransigence of ongoing conflict and ongoing division is compounded by the fact that there is no inspiring political vision present anywhere and in fact to our the earlier part of our conversation that we're almost out of what you would call and i would have to kind of I'll sort of on one level agree out of pragmatism you would necessarily advance political change through the sort of tunnels or funnels or conduits of um existing um parliamentary or, or sorry congressional or whatever you call it in your country democracy and i feel like i've been feeling this for a while that what is required is a kind of relibidinization, a revivification, a resacralization of the political space. The kind of like managerial technocratic neutering that took place probably, at least I've heard cleverer people than me say, as a, res as a response to fascism and communism that politics became kind of nullified managerial protect protectorial let's just do it no one's got a vision no one's saying anything bold you know like with regard to the objectives of black lives matter the objectives of which i would support integrated equal no anti-racist all of those things are kind of that's politically obviously i don't, i guess I'm, i guess it's obvious that's where i would stand but anything that can be squeezed through the uh machine of mainstream media i become immediately dubious about you know same with lgbt lgbtq issues plus issues like if if it, if if for like uh you know the CIA can change their logo to represent that flag, then that it's not change is not going to come from that direction. Something that's peculiar that's happened sort of around Trump, post Trump still now is that the right provide the more radical voice. The right provides the more anti-establishment rhetoric. I, of course, am vehemently opposed to the, where most people I've spoken to on the right when it comes to sort of civil rights and immigration and all, all of those kind of issues. But when it comes to like anti-establishmentism and or as, as you would say with your show with Saga, anti-elites, like that's where I feel like the stronger rhetoric is coming from, at least from the mainstream established left. You're not getting, it's, or it's become puritanical, authoritarianism, devoid of kind of um, spirituality, of like care, nurture, other than the most, the kind of insipid, yeah. kind of sentimentalist, rootless, um, performative morality. Um, I feel that what is required is a... I've been thinking about this is you know specifically what I've been thinking about is anarchism and and left libertarianism the idea of individual freedom and empowered community meaningfully empowered community meaning the ability to control the life of the members of your community without the intervention of the state and without the ubiquitous control of big business I suppose the challenge that that presents is if you don't have a centralized state authority, how do you challenge corporate authority? But at the moment, the state doesn't do that anyway. It supports it. So, you know, the, so I wonder what you think about that. Do you think that what's required is a bolder vision? And do you think those bolder visions are sort of metered, controlled, curtailed as a result of like, you know, the events of the last century? Um. Yes. And I think, I mean, the Cold War was particularly effective for stifling any kind of um, debate, but it's not just the Cold War. You know, I was actually just reading, um, I don't know if you know the the history of the mine wars, 
um, that happened in the early 1900s in West Virginia. Um, there was a, a bloody battle for mine workers who were working in, you know, abhorrent, basically indentured servitude, um, dangerous, low paid, having to live in company towns and only get paid in script. I mean, just the worst conditions you can possibly imagine. So there was a, a bloody uprising um, that was quashed ultimately by federal government troops where lives were lost in order to try to win the right to unionize. And, you know, ultimately, in the end, they were successful in being able to, to win a union and win some better working conditions and, and higher wages and, and those sorts of, of rights were ultimately won in the end. But that history, uh, which is a very proud history of white and black and immigrant workers coming together and fighting for their own rights, has been completely erased from even West Virginia textbooks. There was actually a law that was passed that for decades prohibited the teaching of this, you know, incredibly important history. So, you know, it sounds like conspiracy theory, but there have been incredibly explicit and active propaganda campaigns to make sure that everybody stayed in line, that people didn't cause trouble the way that those um, coal miners caused trouble uh, back in that era to erase that part, to tell you that, you know, that's not possible, that that's not a good thing, that none of that happened so that you feel like the only options available to you are within these really narrow confines, effectively, you know, the right version of neoliberalism and the left version of neoliberalism. That's been extraordinarily successful. But I think that some of those, um, some of the success of that propaganda war is starting to wane, which is why you see you know, people flocking to podcasts like yours, people flocking to, to shows like ours, people flocking to other alternative outlets, because they feel like there's this whole world outside of what's being spoon fed to them that they want to explore, that they want to think about, that they want to ask questions about, that they want to access. So the hopeful part of me thinks that, you know, those methods of extreme control, the effectiveness of them are starting to wane. I believe we're in a real in-between time right now. Um, and I don't actually, you mentioned Steve Bannon and he said, you know, the only options are populism. It's only a question of whether it's populist left or populist right. I don't know that I agree that that's the case. I see the options as either you can have actual democracy of the talk that you, type that you're talking about where people truly have a stake in the affairs in their community and their country, or you can have the direction that we've been heading in for decades now, which is increasing authoritarianism and increasing police state where dissent is, you know, rather than welcoming dissent, let's have a debate of ideas and exchange. Let's see who's got the better ideas and allow them to win out in a free marketplace. It's no, we're going to censor you. We're going to just make it so you can't even say that or we can't even allow that point of view. Um, you see it, you know, in terms of the, the physical demilitarization of police departments throughout the United States and the actual crackdowns that we've seen, especially with regards to the Black Lives Matter movement and the aggressive militarized response that they were met with. You see it with the ever expanding um, surveillance state, you know, that Edward Snowden helped to expose um, that has just continued to grow and grow and grow unabated. I think you have a lot of people who feel very uncertain 
and very scared about what the future is going to hold for themselves and for their family. I think you see people who, you know, genuinely saw the Trump movement as something extraordinarily terrifying, where these old, ugly ideas that we felt like maybe we're starting to kind of put behind us were brought back into the mainstream. And the response, the freak out to that, and the response to that has been, we're just going to clamp down. We're not going to allow any of these, like anything that's outside of this narrow confines, we don't want to hear about whatsoever. And so to me, those are really the two possible directions that things go in. You either go in a direction where you actually trust people, you believe in the basic decency of people, you believe in their ability to have a say in the affairs of the nation, or you have increasing authoritarianism, increasing police state crackdowns. Um, So far, we can see the path that we've been on, but I really think those are kind of the two only choices available. What I was struck by then is that, broadly speaking, in my country and yours, the left, left liberal establishment hates the working class. And that's the that's the class of people that they were, you know, really explicitly in my country created to represent. They exist in that they hate their own purpose. They hate their own function they hate their own constituents they're afraid of ordinary working people they look down on them with contempt they loathe them and as a result the space appeared for a different type of politics or at least a different type of rhetoric even if ultimately we're in administration it was the same type of politics and when um you talk about the sort of the limitation that's that exists like it's either going to be this or this you know and I, like and it's, it's, it's difficult to argue with you crystal for so many reasons but one thing i feel is i feel there is a real power in uh, there is a dormant power in people that is waiting to be unlocked that is potentially quite dangerous and that's why people are reluctant to stir it to do with yeah. people's connection with their land particular connection with their spirit who they are an ability to overwhelm bureaucracy an ability to discover yourself in very potent energies that are at the moment kind of denied i feel like i think for a moment of like when james baldwin talked about the creation of the class of negro as a kind of rejection of the shadow in psychological terms and and this is me sort of paraphrasing baldwin he said what kind of culture would need to create the category of negro and like what are the criteria like you know like uh, the prejudicial and bigoted view particularly of the time when baldwin's writing and speaking overly sexualized animalistic violent the aspects of an individual's nature that the dominator culture doesn't want to own doesn't want to own its own Mm. violence doesn't want to own its own animalism and i feel like that this attempt to create a more authentic politics is going to require an ownership of our own vulnerability as individuals an ownership of our own fallibility and a willingness to ask difficult questions about the fundamental nature of our political uh, of our political systems r- right at the point of entry and i mean sort of literally the nation state does the is the nation state 
the best way that people can live now it made sense for a while it's a relatively recent idea centralized urbanized populations relatively modern idea no longer necessary now that industry doesn't function in the same way that it used to that manufacture doesn't function in the same way that it's used to and possibly the whole this loathing this disdain and despair for working people is a kind of a, a psychic rejection of a class of people that are no longer required as as labor is resourced differently you know in that um you know the house i live in i remember the man that wrote the wire saying why can't they just honestly say that 20 percent of the population there is no use for now there is no use for that 20 percent of the population you don't need a slave class or a you know or an indigenous working class in the way that you know that the industrial age required so they are now surplus to requirements so they have to be villainized jailed addicted destroyed you know like that these are the solutions now i feel that because i feel that we're at some kind of tipping point perhaps we were always at a tipping point perhaps that's what the moment the present is is a tipping point the only moment where decisions can be made perhaps this isn't a unique historical moment only unique in the fact that it's the moment that we're dealing with now and i feel that what we need to be presented with what we need to conjure is a vivid and real and ambitious vision of how we might live that we might live differently that your life needn't be defined by this you are your job if you can't work you can't participate you you need to uh, your duty is to vote that's the beginning and end of your participation in democracy some that and this is why i sort of take record like look at, to the somewhat um you know uh, like the um, old century old at least ideas of anarcho-syndicalism and those kind of things and uh, but but, uh, but those ideas are bureaucratic and dead they need to be um mythologized vivified well i think within neoliberalism um everything comes down to market value right we we abandon any other values, whether they were national values or community values or religious values or spiritual values or, or anything else, everything just became about money and profit. Yeah. And so then it becomes easy when you have a class of people who are valued in, you know, as practically worthless by the market to then assign to them zero worth. You know, that was that was easy to do when you create this system and this mythology around, oh, the great American meritocracy and anyone can make it if you just try hard enough. Then when you see the people who aren't making it through no fault of their own, because the system is essentially rigged for them never to make it and for their kids never to make it, it becomes very easy to say, well, it's your fault. It's because you're worthless and look down at people and have that cont contempt to, you know, feel nothing when they're addicted and in pain and committing suicide when you have mortality rates i mean literally people are dying in america at higher rates people's life expectancy is going down i mean if you can't that's the most basic metric of societal success people are literally dying and it's looked at nobody cares you know it's it's discarded it's people are tossed aside treated like they're not even human beings and I really think that that's a, a direct and easy outgrowth of abandoning every value except the value of money and profit and markets. So you're right. It requires a radical thinking, you know, forget about like Democrats, Republicans, is it a third party? Is it, what is it? it it's a more fundamental rethinking of what are we even doing here? <laughs> what are our goals? 
who is this economy meant to serve, right? What, who is the society meant to serve? What is the project that we're even all engaged in here? Those incredibly like basic foundational level questions have to be radically rethought. And it, it shouldn't even be radical to say that we should have some value other than profit making, but that is considered radical thinking. That is considered thinking that's, you know, dangerous in your language because it's so challenging to the structures of power that so many people benefit from right now. And everybody's terrified to lose their place. You know, if they ended up with a, a good slot, they got lucky through connections or birth or whatever it was, and they've got a good slot for themselves and their kids. Yeah, they're terrified of losing that because they see, and this is the other peril of massive inequality, they see how tough it is for the people who are on the other side of that ledge. They'll do anything to keep from falling off of that ledge themselves and for their kids. So that's how you end up in this situation where, yeah, the elite class will, will do literally anything to hold on to what they have because they see how they actually do see how dire the alternative of living like the the common person does is in reality that's a really cool analysis i was thinking crystal that you know we're basically both ultimately left oriented people it seems um, you've obviously explicitly and stated and an integral part of your job and me just that sort of how i see myself and i wonder sometimes what i am willing the, the great charge the fundamental charge that the right is able to level at the left is hypocrite hypocrite mm. you love to talk you love to get involved in like gesture politics and you know use the right words for this and support that but when it comes to crunch time when it comes to refugees in your spare bedroom yeah that's when that's when you bail that's when you bail and this again is when i seek recourse to spiritual values when i think of what well what am i willing to give up what am i willing to sacrifice mm. to your point earlier there about compromise and like the idea of like you know like it sounds like um like you i grew up in an ordinary background i've lived on welfare before i've been on unemployment benefit like i've lived that life i know that life and uh i'm scared of it i'm scared of it and like i i um you know i ask myself a lot that when we kind of when me and my wife we live in a nice house and stuff and like i used to say with the comfort of knowing she would never allow it what do you think it would be like if in like would our sum total of happiness increase if we had if we lived with homeless people if we just went let's allow as many homeless people as we can as need to live here do you think ultimately we would be happier even though there will be all of the compromises all of the discomfort all of the change all of the things that you're confronted with when you're around poverty and mental illness and suffering and when you lose privilege and would that would that exchange be worth it for the spiritual sucker for the nutrition that would be provided for knowing that we're walking the walk that we're mm. true to ourselves because you know when i meet those people when i meet those men and particularly women that live those lives they're like i'm living it like i i'm in awe of them i'm in awe of them yeah well i think you have to so i think the criticism the the hypocrite criticism from conservatives is both fair and not 
Um, I do think it's true that there's absolutely a lot of people who are simply performative, who like to put on the language and send out the tweet, but, you know, wouldn't lift a finger to actually do anything or would be instantly outraged the moment like they had to personally pay more in taxes or something like that. Um, but I think it's unfair in that, look, in every individual has to live in the society as it exists. So it's always leveled as like, well, how dare you exist in this society when you also critique this society? And that's <laughs> not really a fair, you know, that's not really a fair criticism because the whole idea is, well, we want to change the society so that living in it doesn't inherently so directly conflict with your values at every single turn, right? But I think you have to operate from the place of really believing in a, a, a politics and a system where if you didn't know where you were going to be slotted in, you know, if you didn't know you were going to be slotted in as like, you know, wealthy and successful and able to live in the nice house and all of those things, that it's a society that that you would pick, not knowing where you would you where you would ultimately slot in. So I think that has to be the the ultimate goal. That doesn't mean everybody has exactly the same, but we know that there's a baseline level of human needs that once they're met, you know, people are given a sort of freedom then within their own lives to make choices around their fulfillment, to have that privilege of being able to choose courses of action that are going to lead to to greater happiness and greater personal fulfillment and whatever it is within their life that brings them that personal emotional sucker. So that's a sort of politics and approach that I ultimately believe in. Yeah, me too. Although I feel that that cannot be achieved solely through state intervention and definitely will not be achieved through free market economics. So uh, the thing that I can consider or I'm thinking about is community empowerment. Do you hear about that place? I'm sure you did because you seem a lot. Well, how could you not be better versed than I am? Like, you know, that place in Brazil where they just go, this is the budget. Good luck, guys. You know, like, you know, like, and then they, the community go, well, we're going to spend this on hospitals, this on schools. We're going to send, spend this on, you know, like, and it's a relatively large region. Like, hmm. and, you know. Well, well, the thing I think about, you know, that I think is actually more important even than the sort of Democrat, Republican political party conversation is the one place in America where you've consistently had and with lots of warts and lots of caveats and all of that, but where you've consistently had working class people uh, collaborating together in a democratic fashion across race, across gender, across religion, et cetera, et cetera, is the labor union movement. And that's one thing that I've been really heartened by uh, this year is that there has been a sort of rethinking among working class people coming out of the pandemic. There has been an upsurge in labor unrest and militancy where people are feeling like feeling emboldened to ask for more, to ask for, you know, actually, I want to be able to see my kids and not have to work overtime seven days a week, every week. I yeah. want to be able to earn a, a decent wage. Um, there's a group of miners actually that's on strike in Alabama right now, black and white predominantly miners who have been on strike for months now, just trying to get back to the wages that they had in 2016 before their company declared bankruptcy. And now the now it's been bought out of bankruptcy by a private equity company and they want to continue. They're making, you know, they're making plenty of profits, but they want to keep the workers uh, at that those starvation wages. So you're starting to see more organizing at the sort of grassroots working class level. 
And I actually think that may be a more powerful direction. I think it's an essential direction, in fact, uh, if you're actually going to have a society where working class people have any sort of clout and any sort of voice, because it has to be done in solidarity. It has to be done with numbers because you can never, of course, compete with the money and the connections that financial and political elites have. So it has to be done through, you know, sounds cliche, but through people power. Yes, it must. And one of the challenges I feel both um, ideologically, but, but, but pragmatically, actually, is that we can no longer rely on the solidarity that trade union movements could provide in a mass industrialized society as industrialization is increasingly less relevant because of outsourcing of work, AI revolution. The, and, and from an ideological perspective, that's the pragmatic bit. From the ideological perspective, when that Russell means that um, native person from your country said, but like that the left and the right is a false dichotomy that both assume that our main role is to work in life that's what we're here to do is work and that the earth is a primarily a resource we don't see things that way at all and this is where i feel like indigenous cultures that never invent entered into the experiment of mass centralization and the state experiment might provide wisdom and pragmatic understanding of different ways to organize i know you can't roll back the clock on progress and no one's proposing that we do and like there is the the, the fruits of the technological industrial medical revolutions that have taken place are phenomenal but they my the problem for me is crystal that all things are a subset of late advanced capitalism science is a subset of late advanced capitalism you don't get objectivity within science because its imperatives are set by late advanced capitalism sport right. culture media all things exist under that we live within a fundamentalist ideology whether you're coming at it from the left or right and you cannot achieve objectivity enshrined by that you know it's, it's as much an ideology as fundamentalist islam or state communism or fascism it's perhaps more insidious because it is because of the beautiful way that it is able to caress us into submission through apparent choice yeah i mean you know it's interesting because it's easy to romanticize you know um other societies or societies historical societies from the past the hunter-gatherer before there was settled agriculture you know because in a lot of ways the kind of original sin of humanity in terms of leading us to this place of advanced late stage capitalism where money is everything and people are these like sort of you know are are incentivized to be individual selfish jerks just out for getting theirs um, you know, the advent of personal property and having this thing that's yours to protect against your neighbors and then treating your women and your children like they're your property, all that goes back to, you know, when settled agriculture starts. And that also starts the formation of, you know, nation states and societies as we know it now. So look, it's impossible to roll back the clock. And I don't think that you know, I really particularly want to go back to a time when there was no air conditioning and those sorts of things. But, um, <laughs> but I do think it shows you that human beings are complex. They have both the communal and the selfish within them. And what's brought out of them is very much dependent on the type of societal structures that are around them. So in those 
hunter-gatherer communities, you have this almost like fully communist um, dynamic where there's all these rituals around sharing and making sure everyone's provided for, whether you're the best hunter or the weakest hunter, there's all of these social mechanisms in place to make sure that everybody in the tribe is going to be good. So it's, you know, there isn't this same concept of personal property and this is mine and meritocracy. I'm going to work hard and get to the top. There is no top to ascend to. Um, and so you have, we have to figure out a way to, you know, we're not going to go all the way back there, but to foster more of those communal values that existed in to a greater extent um, in the not so distant past and in places like the U.S. where you had more grounded community institutions where people felt connected to their friends and their neighbors and their place in a way that now, because everything is globalized, everything's anonymous, everything's remote, well, the consequences of your decision to like, you know, foreclose on all these homes is so distant from you that you don't even feel it or take it in as a, as a real consequence. So I don't know what the answers are there, but I do think that there exists in humanity, both pieces of the coin, the, the selfish, the individualistic, that I'm going to get mine, and also the, the big hearted, the generous, the I'm going to look out for myself and my community and my friends and the least of these and what we, the societal structures that we create can, can foster either sides of sort of humans basic nature. Yes. I think it's important to incorporate in that um, sort of in that, the uh, yearning after the Rousseauian idealism of that, uh, uh, those hunter gatherer values of like we buy by evolution have a shared and common goal so there is no requirement for faked tribal solidarity because we have real communal values uh, but the, the diminishing of the significance of the individual of course leads to community but elsewhere might lead to brutality i remember hearing right. some anthropological account of when people are old or sick in some of them cultures like well you're fucked we're off you know like that like because the whole is what's important not the individual and individual and trying to find that kind of as you say that but between these poles you know between thesis antithesis and synthesis how we arrive at that and perhaps that's one of the things that's very attractive about what you and Saga are doing is presenting a real time um, discourse that we can all tune into and enjoy on uh, breaking points and on your other, you know, through your other outlets as well. Because and it's curious to me that what emerged from that was not just um, mouthing the accepted policies of either of those parties, but actually discovering something secondary, sundry, or perhaps even transcendent of those limited, um, you know, those limited um, for the limited frameworks afforded by those two parties. That's definitely what we're trying to do, um, because I do think that that way of viewing um, the country, of viewing each other, of viewing politics is not just limited. I think it's very poisonous mm. um, because it inherently, you know, makes half the country your enemy. And if you believe in at least reviving some of that communal spirit and some of that collectivist, you know, sense of the common good, then it's not going to happen when you have half the country hating the other half of the country and vice versa. 
I'll tell you earlier on, you asked me about sort of like my breakup with the Democratic Party and a big influencer for me in that was I lived for a while in the state of Kentucky, which is a very conservative state. It's at the national level. It's a Republican, a red state. Very Donald Trump's very popular there. Um, you have a lot of work, working class people. You have a lot of working class white people who used to work in these coal mine towns that now are really economically depressed. You have a lot of areas of the state that, you know, manufacturing has been stripped down of. You have all of these things that are happening in Kentucky. And the politics there are quite interesting because it is a very populist state, even though it's more of a populist right state. And I found when I was living there, uh, anytime I would post things about um, some of the, you know, some of the things that were happening there, whether it was healthcare being taken away from people or union rights being stripped from people, I would get all these responses from supposedly progressive people who would be like, well, screw them. You know, they get what they deserve effectively. It's like, whoa, really? Um, because they may have voted for a different political party or basically like, screw you, die. This is supposed to be the party that cares about justice reform and, you know, rehabilitating people and forgiveness. And, you know, that even if you've committed a crime, you pay your debt to society and you should be able to participate again. Like, and you're just willing to casually, like essentially issue a death sentence to this group of people that didn't have a vote the way that you wanted them to vote in a presidential election. That's insane. And so for me, that was a real eye-opening experience of some of the pathologies that, you know, exist with uh, liberals, with the with Democrats, um, especially coming from sort of democratic elites who, as you said, treat much of the country with total contempt um, and condescension and this attitude of like, well, you're stupid and we know better. Um, and the Republicans do the same thing, you know, just with a different sort of group of people. And then they pander to uh they pander to their own group of working class people, but then, you know, turn around and stab them in the back at every possible instance as well. So that sort of experience of how much anger and hatred and ugliness was being directed to, you know, well-meaning fellow citizens was very eye-opening for me. Yeah, I can see how it would be. That's really like from, I have had comparable experiences, but probably they were more, um, personal by which i mean narcissistic because i sort of noticed people not being nice to me specifically mm. me never mind a mining town never mind a red state <laughs> a person and i am that person it's really um encouraging and fascinating to talk to you and i feel more certain than ever that sort of spirituality will be a huge part of the solution but precisely because spirituality uh, pr implies a set of universal values that we all have access to uh, that is non-discriminatory and affords us all a degree of uh dignity and uh, ability to tolerate one another to collaborate and cooperate with one another and not have the expectation that we all parrot the same ideas uh, uh, you know, and and ideas that don't cost us anything don't cost us yeah. anything to say you know i think that's really well said i was really moved by um i covered and uh went to the teacher strikes that happened in west virginia and i don't know how closely you followed that but a couple years back there was this massive wave of teacher strikes and it started in west virginia very trumpian state very red state quote unquote especially at the federal level and there were all these teachers from every corner of the state that shut the schools down um, in order to advocate for not only themselves, but for public education and for um, their students to, you know, be able to, to have enough 
funding for the schools that they actually get a decent education. They flooded the, the state capital. And one of their mantras, one of their rallying cries was, we are worthy. And I just thought that that really got to the, the heart of it. And that's kind of what you're saying is, you know, these universal values, they, they come down to this basic principle that, you know, people deserve dignity. People are worthy of, you know, the basics of human life and the basic ability, as we say in America, to pursue happiness, especially in a wealthy country, there's just no excuse for not seeing and actually valuing, not just with words, but with, with deeds and with social structures, the worth of every human being here. And so um, that sort of basic spiritual framework, I think is a key part of what's been sorely missing in um, late stage capitalist global affairs, uh, starting with America, but uh, everywhere else that we've infected as well. Crystal, thank you very much for coming on this podcast that I do that is called Under the Skin that you've just been doing. We've got through the whole thing without these questions, why you called that, and uh, which I know the answer to, you know, that it's your family surname and your dad was in the crystals. And uh, why did you leave the hill and set up <laughs> breaking points? sound like a hippie. Yeah, it certainly he does. Was a, yeah, what's funny is he wasn't. I mean, that's a, that's what people are always like, your parents must have been hippies or like, are, were you a stripper or something? Um, no, uh, he was a physicist. He did his PhD dissertation on crystals. So yes, you're correct. That's where it comes from. He's the perfect composition of both worlds, a physicist that's interested in crystals. I, I don't imagine these findings were that those crystals were magic and had healing properties. Not that he's made me aware of, at least. Why so. would he tell you? Why you would know. he tell you? <laughs> that's exactly what he would say if he did find out <laughs> that they had magical healing properties. Uh, Crystal, thank you. Uh, thanks a lot for coming on here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Cheers. All right, I hope you enjoyed that podcast with me and Crystal Ball. Remember to sign up to mailing list. Remember to meditate on Above the Noise. Remember to watch my YouTube content and sign up to that mailing list as well. Did I tell you that already? Get signed up onto it. And listen to me when I'm on Crystal Ball, Crystal and Kyle. I'll be on that. Well, I've already been on it, Jen. Yeah. Did you see me on that? Was I good? Oh, but I don't know when it's out. <laughs> you were great. Of course I was. <laughs> Lord, Lord. <laughs> if Lord if the Lord of Light allows. Alright, thanks everyone for listening and uh see you next week. Who's on next week? Uh Dr. Bob Gill. Oh yeah, he's good man. He's good, I thought. Yeah, we he's really him, good. We? Yeah. We've got to find a clever way of using that content because we've got to save the NHS. We've got to do it. Alright, thanks for listening to Under the Skin, only from Luminary. <laughs> <laughs>